Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast of 2023. I'm Jordan Morey, Indiana Lawyer Managing Editor and your host. I hope you all had a great holiday season. We're excited to be back with a new year full of new headlines and interviews. This week's interview is with Clifford Johnson, who is the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Indiana. You won't want to miss it. But first, as always, we have your headlines, so let's dive in. Today is Wednesday, January 11th, 2023, and these are your headlines. To start us off, I'd like to introduce to you Indiana Lawyer's newest reporter, Alexa Schrake. Alexa is making her Indiana Lawyer podcast debut with a story about the latest sentence in a corruption case involving several Muncie City employees and business owners. Alexa, what can you tell us? After almost a decade of investigation, the final defendant in a case involving widespread corruption among Muncie city leaders and business owners was sentenced on January 3rd. Tony Franklin will serve 12 months and one day in prison, plus two years of supervised release, and will pay nearly $280,000 in restitution. Franklin, the owner of Franklin Building and Design, pleaded guilty in July to one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. He's one of eight individuals who are part of the scheme that cost Muncie $1.57 million. That includes former Muncie Mayor Dennis Tyler, who was sent to prison after he pleaded guilty to taking a bribe from a local contractor. He has since been released. During a press conference announcing Franklin's sentence, FBI Special Agent in Charge Herbert Stapleton spoke about how cases like this betray the public. As a result of this systemic public corruption, involving contracts and kickbacks, taxpayers were deprived of more than a million dollars of value that should have accrued to the benefit of the public. Left unchecked, the misconduct of these few individuals could unfairly tarnish the reputations of the many, many public servants throughout the state of Indiana who work hard to make life better for the citizens they represent. Back to you, Jordan. Thanks, Alexa, and welcome to the team. Next, here's Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington with a look at what to expect during the 2023 session of the Indiana General Assembly, which began this past Monday. Olivia? The start of the new year brings the start of a new legislative session in Indiana. Indiana's 150 lawmakers convened Monday to start the 2023 session of the Indiana General Assembly, a so-called long session that runs through April and gives legislators time to craft the state's next two-year budget which will take effect on July 1st. Before lawmakers came together Monday, state leaders were already laying out their agendas for this year's session. That includes Republican Governor Eric Holcomb, who is advocating for an economic development agenda that includes increased funding to buy land, close deals, and improve the state's workforce, according to our sister paper, the Indianapolis Business Journal. He's also asking for money to support public health initiatives. But Holcomb isn't the only one with ideas for how the state should spend its money over the next two years. Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush appeared before the state budget committee last month and asked for a 7% funding increase. Rush highlighted the need for additional funding to support the court's technology initiatives, but she's also seeking money for problem-solving courts, commercial courts, and civil legal aid. Aside from budget requests, Hundreds of bills have already been filed related to a wide variety of issues, including legislation related to marijuana and requests for new judicial officers. The deadline for filing bills is this week, and the General Assembly must adjourn by April 29th. A lot can happen between now and then, so stay tuned. Like we do every year, we'll keep a close eye on the bills that have a direct impact on the practice of law. 
So check back with us between now and the end of April for periodic updates. Switching to court news, change is happening at the Court of Appeals of Indiana. Since our last episode aired on December 14th, Judge Dana Kenworthy has been selected to join the COA bench, and Judge Robert Altice has been elected the court's next chief judge. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb selected Kenworthy to succeed Justice Derek Moulter on the Court of Appeals after he was selected to join the Indiana Supreme Court. She's been the judge of Grant Superior Court, too, since 2010. Kenworthy's appointment to the COA is historic because it will bring the 15-member court to eight female members, the first time in its history that the COA has had a female majority. Holcomb praised Kenworthy at a December 21st press conference when he announced her as his fifth appointee to the Court of Appeals and his 82nd judicial appointment overall. When you think about some of her colleagues, what they have to say about her um, just underscores the point. Someone said that her positivity is contagious. Um, and I like that kind of contagious then, on December 30th, the COA announced that Judge Robert Altice has been elected chief judge, succeeding Judge Kel Bradford, who had served as chief since 2020. The judges of the Court of Appeals elect a chief judge every three years. Altice has been on the lower appellate court since 2015, and he served for more than a decade as a trial court judge before that. His three-year term as chief judge began January 1st. Alexa will have an in-depth look at these changes to the COA bench in our January 18th issue, so be sure to pick up a copy. Shifting gears to the federal courts, U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts has released his annual report for 2020, using the report to once again sound the alarm on the threat to judicial officers. Judicial security has been a growing concern in the federal courts in recent years, especially since the 2020 murder of the son of New Jersey Judge Esther Salas. Last month, Congress enacted the bill named for her son, the Daniel Andrell Judicial Security and Privacy Act, to help protect judges and their families. According to Roberts, quote, a judicial system cannot and should not live in fear, end quote. The Chief's annual report also provided a look at federal court case filings in 2022. Total filings fell across both the district and appellate court levels, including at the Supreme Court. You can find all the data and more from Robert's report on our website. Next, let's send it back to Olivia for a look at the latest on abortion in Indiana. Thanks, Jordan. Like 2022, 2023 is set to be a busy year on the abortion front. In fact, a major abortion hearing is happening at the Indiana Supreme Court next week. Here's a quick rundown of what's coming up. Let's start with the case scheduled for Supreme Court arguments on January 19th. That's the case that challenges the constitutionality of the near-total abortion ban that was enacted in Indiana back in August. The ban prohibits abortions in the state with a few limited exceptions. The law took effect in September, but it was enjoined within a week and hasn't taken effect again since. Judge Kelsey Hanlon ruled in September that the ban violates women's right to privacy guaranteed by Article 1, Section 1 of the Indiana Constitution. The Indiana Supreme Court accepted emergency transfer of the case, which means it bypassed the Court of Appeals. Arguments are scheduled to last an hour rather than the usual 40 minutes. Meanwhile, in a separate case, the abortion ban has also been enjoined on religious freedom grounds. Specifically, a Marion County judge ruled last month that the law violates the state's Religious Freedom Restoration Act, also known as RIFRA. 
As he did in the constitutional case, Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita is seeking emergency transfer of the RIFRA case to the Indiana Supreme Court. The justices haven't ruled on that petition, but the plaintiffs, who include five anonymous plaintiffs plus the group Hoosier Jews for Choice, are opposing transfer. Then in February, the Indiana Medical Licensing Board will hold a hearing in the administrative action against Dr. Caitlin Bernard, the abortion doctor who has been publicly feuding with Rokita since the summer. Rokita filed the administrative action against Bernard's medical license in November, claiming she violated patient privacy and abuse reporting requirements when she publicly discussed the case of a 10-year-old girl from Ohio for whom Bernard performed an abortion. That hearing is scheduled for February 23rd. We'll keep an eye on each of these cases, plus any other developments in the ongoing abortion fight, so check back with us for updates. To wrap up today's headlines, let me tell you about a story I'm working on for our January 18th issue. In a December 19th order, the Indiana Supreme Court amended Rule 65D of the Indiana Rules of Appellate Procedure to allow litigants to cite to memorandum decisions for persuasive value. The change applies to memorandum opinions issued January 1st, 2023 and later. Under the current rule, memorandum decisions cannot be regarded as precedent and cannot be cited except to establish res judicata, collateral estoppel, or the law of the case. The amended rule says memorandum decisions may be cited for persuasive value to any court by any litigant. However, litigants have no duty to cite such a decision. Multiple groups have been calling for the rule change for years, and now it's here. I'm talking to several legal experts, including appellate attorneys and law professors, to get an idea of what this change means moving forward. Be sure to pick up the next issue of Indiana Lawyer to learn more. All right, that'll do it for this week's headlines. Be sure to check out theindianalawyer.com for more on these stories and for the latest in other legal news. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear my conversation with Clifford Johnson, U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Indiana. Taft. Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's excited interview, we have Clifford Johnson, U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Indiana, joining us via Zoom. Attorney Johnson, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the invitation. As some background, Attorney Johnson has served for more than 35 years in the Indiana Northern District Attorney's Office. Uh, he was confirmed to his current position in the fall of 2021 after being nominated by President Joe Biden. He was Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Indiana from 1986 to August 2020 and had previously held numerous supervisory and management positions, including Chief of the Civil Division from 97 to 2010, and twice serving as the first Assistant U.S. Attorney. He also served as the district's acting U.S. Attorney from March to October 2017. Before all that, after graduating from Valpo Law School, uh, Johnson started his career as a trial attorney for the Employment Litigation Section of the Justice Department's Civil Rights in Washington, D.C., uh, from August 1980 to December 1985. So first off, uh, why did you uh, decide to become a lawyer and why did you decide to get into federal law enforcement? Well, I, I decided to become a lawyer in high school. I think in my sophomore year, there was an extracurricular club, a Law Explorers. And I, I went to a lawyer's office and spent time with him in the evening. And 
just became infatuated by the law at that point. Uh, so that was the original impetus for becoming a lawyer. Uh, if my mother were, were around, she would say I was born a lawyer because I was always argumentative. So it was a natural uh, selection of a profession. What, what drew you to uh, federal law enforcement? How did you kind of, how did your path take you to where you are today? Well, my, my path is somewhat unusual in the sense that many U.S. attorneys uh, come up through the criminal side of a U.S. attorney's office. I was a civil litigator for, for most of my professional career, both as civil rights and initially when I came to the U.S. attorney's office. But one former U.S. attorney, David Capp, asked me to serve as his first uh, assistant. And that's when I became more involved in management of the full office, both the civil side and the criminal side. So it's as a result of that exposure that I became more familiar with the full operation of the U.S. attorney's office. Uh, when most people think of a U.S. attorney's office, they only focus on the criminal side of the shop, and they're absolutely unaware that there that there's also a civil component. I sort of have a well-rounded view of the full operation of my uh, of of my office, and that's what's led to this current uh, position because that's where uh, I first became exposed to the law enforcement aspects of the U.S. attorney's office. Kind of building off that, you know, you've worked in the in the office for a long time now. Um, what are some of the notable changes you've seen in the office over the years? Well, when I first came to the office, I did not come to the office when we were still using carbon copy paper, but the original technology we had was early Xerox ball printers. So I've seen the technology progress. But one of the major changes, especially on the civil side, of the shop, when I first came to the office, the district really operated on divisional venue, where cases civil and criminal were had to be filed within the, not only within the Northern District, but within the particular division of the Northern District where the action took place. So civil cases and criminal cases that happened in Fort Wayne were uh, filed in the Fort Wayne Division, South Bend Division, and Hammond Division. Well, with the change in technology, particularly uh, the electronic filing system and record system, especially on the civil side, we no longer have the divisional venue. So instead of having civil staff in every office, all of our civil staff is now concentrated in the Hammond office, but covers the entire district. So that type of localization on, on the uh, civil side has gone away. And one of the other things that I've, I've, I've seen in the office is just the technological changes uh, behind litigation. No longer are we paper and pencil, but it's much more digital and through internet filings and things of that, of that nature. So the practice of law has changed tremendously from a technological point of view over the past 30 years. Um, even the past couple of years, um, you kind of came in uh, to your new position in a unique time with COVID. You know, give us an idea of how the office operated while all of these different health mandates were in effect, and and the courts were trying to figure out exactly how to how to take on this challenge. Well, 
the year before uh, the COVID pandemic, our office was going through a technology upgrade. And uh, I was the first assistant at that point. And we had to choose what type of technology uh, we were going to have. Our prior practice was to allow AUSAs to have laptops and support had desktops. But I convinced the then U.S. attorney that we should get laptops for everybody, which allows a more robust uh, remote ability back into our network. My U.S. attorney asked me, well, why, well, why would you ever get a laptop for your support personnel? And my response to him was simply, winter happens every year in the Northern District of Indiana. <laughs> uh, so that we, we, we were not anticipating that a pandemic would happen, but you know our offices could continue to operate either in bad weather conditions because we could tell people, hey, if a storm's coming, a storm's predicted to come, take your laptop home instead of taking a snow day, you know, remote back in and get your work done. Uh, one of the things that we also did, luckily, was we converted from a paper system to an electronic file system so that uh, people did not have to have case files home in order to work on them. But we have a sort of like a uh, cloud-based common file structure system that allows people to uh, support AUSAs, even our litigation support to all have access to data through our, re our remote system. So we were well positioned for the pandemic. What has been uh, the biggest adjustment for you going from your previous role to the, uh, the current one? Well, how can I say, I, I was prepa somewhat prepared for the transition because I was the first assistant for the last 10 years of my career. So I was every U.S. attorney that I was the first assistant for allowed me to really see behind the interactions that our office had with Maine Justice when it came to policy initiatives by the attorney general. I was already familiar with the administrative side of the shop. In fact, during one part of my career, I was the acting AO for our office for almost a year. So there was really no component or facet of the office that I was unfamiliar with when I stepped back into being the uh, U.S. attorney. One of the main challenges that I'm having that just about every U.S. attorney's office is having is uh, staffing. Uh, during the pandemic, it people's um, focus on work and what they wanted from work and their expectations of work have changed tremendously. So how do you marry the mission of the office with a person's expectation as to what flexibilities they think they, they should have. And that's the biggest challenge, the personnel side of it. What are some of the issues that are unique to the, uh, the Northern District compared to maybe the Southern District? And what is your relationship like uh, with Attorney Myers and his office? I was just on the phone with Zach last night. So, oh, so he, and I, he and I talk often. We're, we're always in a communication because even though we're different districts, we're still in the same state. So we want to make sure that the operation of, operation of my office and the policy considerations of my office aren't radically different than in the Southern District. 
So we're constantly communicating. One of the uniquenesses of the Northern District is that the Northern District has Indian territory in it and the Southern District does not. So our relationship uh, or maintaining that relationship with a sovereign nation, the, the Pokagon Band of the Potawatomi, which has an actual uh, land in trust in which they have a casino and they're building a, a hotel, is one of the things that sets us apart from the Southern District. Because it's only been within the past 15 years that Indiana has had any Indian territory in it. So that's one of the unique things about the Northern District that the Southern District does not have to deal with. Uh, being in the Northern District, you uh, you often work with law enforcement from Illinois, especially on gun and drug issues connected to Chicago. Can you tell me a little bit about the efforts to disrupt those illegal actions and especially firearms in Indiana? Attorney General uh, Garland established a uh, there there are strike forces. There are strike force cities. And Chicago is one of the strike force cities when, when it comes to gun violence. And being a, a strike force city, our mandate or those districts surrounding a uh, city are required to coordinate our efforts in gun prosecutions to try to reduce the uh, gun violence in Chicago. Uh, and one of the areas that we coordinate on a lot is what's known as straw purchasing. When somebody comes to Indiana, says they're buying the gun for themselves, when in reality, they're actually buying the gun for someone who is going to then take that gun and go back to Chicago and, and use it in uh, criminal activity there. So we, so we do a lot of prosecution of uh, straw purchases. We've also had a couple of cases where people are engaged in the business of gun trafficking. Uh, they are not a licensed FFL, but they are maintaining a business on the side of, of selling guns. Often those guns end up in Chicago. So we coordinate with uh, Chicago on our gun prosecutions. Uh, U.S. Attorney Lausch and I talk often about our cases. My criminal chief works with his criminal chief on what is the best place to prosecute a particular uh, straw, straw purchase. One of the cases that was recently prosecuted in Chicago was the purchase of a gun in Indiana by an Indiana resident that was then transferred to a Illinois resident that was used in the shooting of a Chicago police officer. That particular case was prosecuted in Chicago on a conspiracy type of charge. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was one that we were aware of, we gave assistance to, and we decided that the Northern District of Illinois would be the more appropriate venue to prosecute that particular case. Obviously, you know, guns make big headlines and, and drugs make big headlines and all of that, but what are some uh, efforts by your office that maybe, I don't know, flying under the radar is the right way to put it, but what are some things that your office is doing that you feel are important that maybe people don't realize or, or know too much about? One of the things that this attorney general and the assistant attorney general for the Civil Rights Division has done is an initiative on environmental justice. Uh, and the Northern District of Indiana has a strong manufacturing base and a lot of heavy industry. And, and the goal of that environmental 
emphasis is to try to ensure that the negative impacts from environmental and industrial activity aren't unevenly borne by certain communities and not others. Uh, and that is an initiative that we have just started. And uh, we have posted on our webpage a link that we where people can report any type of activity that they believe uh, should be looked at from an environmental justice aspect. Uh, so that's a directive that I hope bears fruit during my tenure. You're the uh, first Black lawyer to lead the, the Indiana Northern District's office. Uh, what does that just mean to you personally? Well, I'm not only, I, I'm going to uh, give a little history lesson. I believe the state of Indiana became a state in 1812. So I'm not only, I'm the first Black U.S. attorney in the entire state because I was confirmed and sworn into office before Zach. So I was the first in the state as well as the first in the Northern District of Indiana. And it means a lot to me. And basically, it was one of the reasons why I came out of retirement. I retired in August of 2020 and then came back out of retirement out of retirement uh, to assume the position of being the U.S. attorney. In our main office in Hammond, we have a central hallway that has the picture of every person, male, white male, that has held the position of the U.S. attorney. About three years before I retired, I happened to be walking down that hallway with the then criminal chief, and I asked him, when you walk down this hallway, how do you feel? And he looked at me very quizzically by saying, well, what do you mean by how do you feel? And, and I, I said, I had to tell him that every time I walk down this hallway, I get a knot in my stomach because no picture on that wall looks like me. So in the 200 years of there being a district in a uh, federal district in Indiana, in almost the 100 years of there being a U.S. attorney office in the Northern District of Indiana, had there been someone of color in that position? Uh, I'm not naive enough to believe that that means that there was no one else qualified before me. It's just that no one had the opportunity to serve. And I just want to make sure that other people when they walk down that hole, they don't have to suffer with that knot the way that I did. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to me that, that that wall becomes very representative of the diversity in our district. So that was a long-winded story for how, uh, what it means to me. I want to make sure that no other young person has to walk down that hall and be confronted with a history of leadership that does not at all embrace him or her. What's something you would like lawyers to know about you and your office that they might not know? Well, having grown up on the civil side of the shop, I like to tout or mention in every interview the good work of my civil division. Of my 38 AUSAs, we have a staff of six that focus on civil litigation, both affirmative, where we're going out trying to get money, as well as 
defensive, trying to defend the Treasury of the United States. I just got a report from the financial litigation program aspect of the civil division. And for last year, we brought in almost eight million bucks. Five million of that was in criminal restitution. So that 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 criminal that financial litigation program is the program that touches the criminal practice because a successful criminal pro- prosecution should always have three components to it. It holds the criminal accountable. It seeks to take away from that criminal any financial gain that they got from their crime. And it also restores the losses to the victims of the crime. And and much of that work, or two-thirds of that work, is done by the civil division. We're the ones, they are the ones that collect, and they're the ones that are actively participating in that restitution. So that's a part of the office that I want people to know about that not only are we prosecuting people, but we're seeking to make those who suffer a financial loss as a result of a crime financially whole again. That will do it for this week's episode. Thanks again to U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Indiana, Clifford Johnson, for joining us on this week's episode. You can catch up on previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast on theindianalawyer.com or via your favorite streaming service. 